Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. Welcome to Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 13, I'm interviewing Jonas Dykman, a German adventurer and motivational speaker that has cycled around the world and set world records in 2017 for cycling across Europe and Eurasia in 64 days, and then again in 2018 doing the Pan America from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to Ushuaia, Argentina in 97 days. Since then, he's been competing in Biking Man, the toughest ultra cycling series in the world, consisting of six unsupported races around the globe. On top of that, this past June, he and his brother set off with the goal of cycling over 100,000 meters of elevation in the Alps, twice that of the hardest Tour de France, finishing in just 22 days. Not only is Jonas a well-regarded adventurer, but he also works as a motivational speaker, presenting on the art of never giving up, working with clubs, companies, NGOs, and schools all over Europe. Jonas, it's a pleasure to have this chance to finally talk with you. It's been a long time in the making. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's my pleasure. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, um, other than what I already said, I guess? <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. So I maybe say a bit about um, how I came into what I'm doing now, because I'm probably one of just a handful of um, professional um, unsupported bike riders in the world, because I actually, it's my life now. And um, it's a long journey. I started um, doing adventures also as a child, but really any kind of adventures. And uh, when I was a student in uh, in Sweden during my bachelor, I wanted to see the world and I, I loved cycling, but I had no money. So that's why I came up with the idea, um, hey, yeah, let's, let's cycle around the world. It's, it's cheap. Mm -hmm. It's a good place, to, a good way to travel. So I went once around the world. And um, at that point, I came up with the idea of... Um, yeah, why not uh, setting like an unsupported world record going in, in into the wild and uh, pushing to myself to the limit. And then uh, basically one thing led up to another one. You went to university in Jan Scherping, right? Yes. And that's where you took the two years off to, to cycle around the world? Um, well, I did it in, in, in different stages. Okay. Uh, that was when I started with doing uh, the first four months. Mm -hmm. And then the next semester break, I, I continued. And uh, when I finished my master's uh, four years later, I had uh, cycled 18 months around the world. Oh, nice. Okay, that's a great way to do it. I mean, because like, a lot of people just drop and sell everything or, and, you know, it's, it's tough. Me, I'm, I'm kind of like that. I'm a teacher, so I'm, my, my touring is going to be summer-based, really. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. Uh, how old were you when you did this 18 months or so around the world? Um, that must have been around 20, 22, 23 22, 23. And yeah. I guess aside from your flights to getting to the next part, it was fairly inexpensive. Oh, it was, I had no money at all as a student. Um, I actually, <laughs> so I know exactly what I spent actually. It's uh, with flight tickets and visa and everything, including uh, I spent uh, less than eight euros a day. Less than eight euros a day, everything included. Wow, that's, that's yes. really low. And um, where did you go? Like, in, in general, I guess. 
Well, I started in New Zealand and uh, cycled across uh, Australia, Southeast Asia, and then uh, into India and uh, across Iran, the Caucasus, and Turkey into Europe. Did a big loop across um, basically everywhere in Europe mm-hmm. and then continued to a bit in, in, in Brazil. Okay, yeah, because I saw you lived in Brazil for a while, right? Um, yeah, I lived, I lived two years in Brazil, yeah. What did you learn from this tour that helped you with your goal of uh, doing these challenges, I should say? Um, what has proven invaluable from this bike touring experience? Like from the, the bike touring experience, um, I learned about that in a lot of places in the world, uh, you simply always find a solution. Mm-hmm. It's not as it is in, in Europe or in North America that, that the things are as they are and you follow the rules and everything. So uh, in the bike uh, touring, I got into a lot of issues, but uh, there's always a way way around it. People are friendly, whatever the, the media says about it. And um, that's something that I use also now when I go faster. Unless you mess up your rear derailleur and nobody in Laos has a tool for such a thing. It wasn't my rear derailleur. Oh, it was actually my, my button bracket, a button bracket that made a problem. Oh. And uh, yes, so so mechanics is still an issue. I went uh, into a motor uh, bike repair shop mm-hmm. and they tried to fix it, but it didn't work. Okay. <laughs> it's not experts, but uh, what I mean is like, um, I had been in so many difficult situations and um, the locals are so friendly yeah. and do their way wherever you are in the world. Yeah, and with the exceptions of major mechanical failure like you had, I said in most cases yeah, things can yeah. be sorted out and fixed. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you have like a road bike um, and you are in, in a third world country, you're not going to find spares. What was your daily mileage like or kilometers? What were you riding an average distance on a day when you were doing your, your bike tour? Um, that was, I still was a bit faster than most people. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say uh, around 120k a day on average. Okay. I basically never cycled less than a hundred and few days with more than a hundred seventy probably. Okay. Somewhere in between that. And how often did you take rest days? At that point, I probably took like maybe all ten days of rest day. Oh yeah. In the in yeah. each four month segment, yeah, or over the whole thing. Uh, yes, yes, yes. In yeah. each four month segment. Okay. What was it that pushed you and made you think you know I could do this and I could go hardcore and just giver and maybe set a world record but I, I actually actually had no idea at all um, if it's even possible okay. um, what I thought is basically I come from the touring side so I love the adventure and uh, to explore and go somewhere rides and uh, I did uh, cycling races when I like road racing mm-hmm. when I was 16 and 17 okay so I do have an athletic background but uh, when I decided to do the Eurasia world record I had never cycled more than like a thousand five hundred k, like basically pushing myself. Yeah, and I felt really miserable after that. So I saw it that some people have done the distances in a similar time, and I simply thought if if someone can do it, I can do it too. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of doing it. Did you? How did you prepare for it? Did you uh, just spend a, a couple of months training, getting used to riding every day hard, or was it uh, just more of the same as no. bike touring but with less weight? Um, not at all, actually. At that point, I was still having a proper job. So I was uh, traveling a lot and working a lot and had a uh, little time. So I did uh, a lot of running and, uh, and cycling, but not those very big distances uh, mm-hmm. as I should have done in training. So I had probably around six, seven thousand k in the half year before the record, which really isn't that much. Okay. And uh, the body adapts also during the start. I mean, ninety uh, percent is the mindset anyway. Yeah. So after the, you get past that first two weeks, your now your body can handle it or not. Yes, exactly. But I mean, for the Pan America, I trained uh, three times more than than I did for Eurasia okay. and. Uh, I'm also have said I've done a much faster time. So Eurasia, I could now do significantly faster than I have done yeah. uh, two and a half years ago. Um, yeah, you did that. So, you did Eurasia in about sixty. How many days? Sixty-four days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was an average speed of a little bit less than two hundred thirty, and thirty uh, k a day. Mm-hmm. And Pan America was an average speed of two hundred and thirty-eight k a day. 
but with significantly more uh, climbing and yeah. headwinds. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Pan America is uh, the worst, the, the most difficult thing you can possibly do, especially going from north to south, which is uh, the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So you set two records when you did the Eurasia. You set a, a European record and then a Eurasia record as well, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, it's basically the Europe one is the is the first part of it. Uh, it finishes at the Ural Mountains, uh, so it was like just something I I took along the way. So that's from from Portugal to Yekaterinburg. That was one record of its own, and then the the overall as well was a separate record. Yeah, uh, exactly. But it it goes to to Ufa actually, not to Yekaterinburg. Uh, the Europe record, but it's uh, yeah, it's also where the Ural Mountains start, and then uh, from there you continue to. Eurasia to set the bigger record. Mm-hmm. And do you know if these are both still, you're holding both records still? Uh, the Europe one got, got broken. Okay. Uh, the Eurasia one I still have. Okay, cool. Um, what were some of the difficulties in this first um, record challenge across Eurasia? But it, it went pretty smooth until the Czech Republic. Okay. And in the Czech Republic, I had a, my frame broke. Oh. Um, so I had to. Yeah, I put a bike on the shoulder and I run for uh, basically 38 kilometers to the next town. And in the town, I found exactly one frame that was my size and I could continue. But uh, if that would have happened in, in Russia, I, it would be over because there's just nothing around. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, so that was still lucky, but there's always something happening. And um, like the best plan doesn't doesn't work in practice if you do something over a few months mm-hmm. and the main problem was however after Lake Baikal uh, which is really in the far east of, of Siberia there's a stretch of um, like two and a half thousand kilometers with almost nothing there's really yeah. barely anything there and um, I had uh, rain and uh, temperatures just about freezing for mm-hmm. two weeks in a row and it started snowing on the, on the peaks and I wasn't prepared for that in terms of Clothing, so I had like short gloves and um, short uh, hip shorts, and that was like a, a total nightmare. I got at the point of being close to. I had one night where I I couldn't sleep because I was afraid that if I would fall asleep, I wouldn't wake up again. So the weather really slowed me down in the in the far east of Siberia. I've taken the Trans Siberian, and I lived in Russia for three years, and it's long yeah. and very empty and. I can only imagine. Like, how was the condition of the roads <laughs> when you got past Lake Baikal? The, the roads, in in theory, it's paved. Um, the only thing is, in summer, um, you have to perma the permafrost uh, in uh, most of Siberia. Mm-hmm. So they do all the road constructions in summer. Okay. Uh, so there are big stretches of uh, of construction. Of uh, I think in the whole of Russia, it sums up to probably 500k of oh. uh, road construction, and that is. Uh, just lose gravel uh, in very bad conditions. So the road construct the roads are better than a lot of people think if you stay on the main road. Mm-hmm. Um, but there will be a few hundred kilometers of gravel. And the Russian drivers, if you've ever watched those accident videos with the dash cams, are notoriously insane and uh, prone to to massive accidents how did you feel riding on those roads with the trucks and cars coming by yes i felt especially in the west of russia which is still very populated mm-hmm. it's the most dangerous place in the world to be on a bike that's right uh, with the trucks like passing you with like just a few centimeters at full speed mm-hmm. um i had situations where i jumped off the, the road because of, of trucks um a very important thing for anyone riding there is um, the worst, so the very small roads are in terrible conditions. You can do it on a touring bike, but not on a road bike. Right. Um, the real problem are the medium-sized roads because they are in good conditions, but they have no shoulder and a lot of trucks. So right, this is simply right. very dangerous. Um, so the safest option is actually going on the on the, the biggest highway you can find. Yeah. It's not it's... fun, but mm-hmm. there is a shoulder. True, true. And uh, for me, it got better basically... Um, I would say halfway across Russia, it's uh, Krasnoyarsk, Novosibirsk, yeah. in, in, in that area, Novosibirsk, Krasnoyarsk, from there on, traffic isn't an issue anymore. You do have sometimes uh, a trunk truck driver that overtakes you a bit too close, but it 
happens uh, all few days mm -hmm. and not uh, every hour like in the West. Interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah, once you get past there, most of the, the goods and services are being sent by train. So it's no longer a matter of trucking as much, I think. Yeah. 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 What was the best part of that first challenge? Oh, I, I love the area after after Lake Baikal. Mm -hmm. um, I still had um, the rain basically started after Cheetah, which is about I think 450 or 500k after Lake Baikal okay. after Ufa, and after after Irkutsk on Lake Baikal. Yeah. And um, this ride uh, going uh, along the shore of Lake Baikal and then into uh, into Cheetah, basically on the on the Mongolian border, it is just one of the most uh, incredible places I've ever been. So that was very enjoyable, and uh, no traffic, uh, open landscapes, just incredible. Yeah, I took some time off the train and I went to Lake Baikal for a few days uh, onto the island, Olhon Island, and it is sick. It's so nice. It's really something unreal. Yeah. How do you keep yourself motivated during these long, arduous days on the bike? Because you're you're pounding out massive kilometers, so you're on the bike for a long time. Um, well, there are, of course, a lot of different uh, strategies how I keep motivated, but I think the number one and uh, most important thing is uh, to break down the big goal into very small ones. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so, so I break it down in smaller goals, which means I'm not um, focusing on, on the whole distance of like still five or 10,000 K to go. Mm -hmm. What I think is um, only about today and actually less than that, I think like, it's 80k to go to the next uh, restaurant or gas station and the next gas station mm -hmm. you buy a sneakers bar and you love sneakers <laughs> and um, and that keeps me going yeah it's, it's sneakers bars because sneakers you have have anywhere in the world and and i love them and that keeps me going and and once i had my sneakers and my food i'm happy again and and head out in on the road and i know it's, it's just 80k and there comes the next one do you uh, listen to music podcasts etc while you're cycling uh, no, I don't because uh, I'm unsupported and I camp most of the time. So electricity is just something uh, too valuable for me. Right. Yeah, I think especially when you're if you're if you're bike touring, it's a different story. What kind of bike did you use on your first tour or your first uh, your first challenge? Yeah, my first challenge was basically a normal uh, road bike, current mm -hmm. frame, and. Um, that was a mistake because I had um, my biggest problem in terms of the body was actually not my legs. It was uh, my neck and my and my back mm -hmm. because uh, you're in the arrow, the time trial position all day. And that's just incredibly uncomfortable. So that's why also the biggest change I made. I'm now um, riding an endurance bike, which is um, a little bit uh, less aerodynamic, but uh, more comfortable. Okay. And that's what you used. You used a Cervelo C5 on your Pan America Highway uh, record. Exactly. Exactly. It was a very good bike. Uh, also, an endurance bike, very comfortable. Um, I changed now to, to a curved bike, uh, which is Titanium for Africa. Okay. Um, simply for the fact um, Titanium is still a bit softer, so more comfort. But most importantly, um, the risk of, uh, of failure is much lower. Okay, uh, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about the Africa thing in a minute. I was watching your video for the Pan America Highway. It's pretty awesome. I liked uh, you kept it really minimal. I mean, with just a selfie stick GoPro, and that was about it yeah. for um, with regards to technology, other than your spot tracker and various things like that. Um, I did notice that at times you were quite hungry and thirsty, and you never seemed to have enough equipment with you. How do you decide what's necessary and what's considered a luxury? But the thing is, um, I want to be as, as light as possible. It's yeah. always a conflict between comfort and speed. And in my case, uh, comfort unfortunately loses most of the time. <laughs> um, I basically think about with what I really can't live. And that's mm -hmm. um, a bit of clothes, but very little. Uh, the most essential spare parts. Right. And uh, a few electronics for pictures and uh, navigation. And that's pretty much it. Uh, you can get luggage down to six, seven kilos and uh, and go with it. Wow. If there's something I, I, I don't use for three or four days, I'm probably not going to need it. Except for spare spokes. Oh, actually, you had the, uh, the, the fiber yes. spokes too, right? The lightweight. Uh, exactly. Temporary spokes. 
How much food and water do you usually have with you? Um, that depends very much where I am. Um, in on Pan America, apart from from Patagonia and uh, and Alaska uh, and the Yukon, there is usually something coming at least all 70, 80 k's. Okay. So that is a distance I do cover in 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 the house, mm-hmm. um, or less. So water isn't a problem if I I fill my two water bottles. Um, that's more than enough for for three four hours. The same with food. Um, I don't have to carry a lot. Um, it was different in the north and the south, of course. I had stretches of, um, I think the longest was around 280k in in, in the Yukon. Okay. Uh, we had nothing, and that's a distance where, um, yeah, you buy, you have to carry for a day. I do have, uh, for emergencies, when I have like really long distances, I do have um, a tri bag that I can uh, strap around uh, my aero bars mm-hmm. and I can fill it up with, with additional uh, food. Okay. And a lot of your food that you're cooking is uh, stuff that you don't need to add water to cook, right? So if it's like you said, Uncle Ben's, I think I saw in the video, you're eating a lot of Uncle Ben's fried rice. Yes. Yes. So, so Uncle Ben's is what I, what I, what I often go with in, in North America. I didn't cook anymore once I reached Mexico. Okay, so everything after uh, that because food is so is so cheap and available everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is more getting the right food because um, I burn um, almost ten thousand calories a day. Is that what you're burning? About ten thousand a day? Whew. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the thing is, in in some countries like in Mexico, you get uh, proper calorie-rich food basically everywhere on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for Peru, but uh, in some countries uh, it's all fried. Okay. And I don't have the time to stop like three times a day in a restaurant, so I need food that I can grab, it, put it to my into my pocket, and then eat on the bike. Yeah. And this is just in a lot of countries simply not available. Okay. So in in practice, I eat a lot of cookies and chocolate and and this kind of stuff. Okay. When you were in Alaska, you had that one stretch. It was super muddy, right? And you're getting mud caught in your disc brakes and it was slowing you down and everything. Um, the Dalton Highway, yes. That's that's the first stretch um, from Puto Bay, which is in the northernmost point of Alaska, like a little oil field, uh, to Fairbanks okay. in the center of Alaska. It's, I think, 730 or 40 kilometers. And it's all a very, very bad uh, quarrel road okay. with nothing in between. And the road is actually dry. It's all hard, so you can even on a road bike ride easily. The problem is when it rains, it, it turns into deep mud. Okay. Um, so if you're touring there, I would simply stop and wait uh, until the sun comes back. But I couldn't do that. Um, so for me, it was like conditions. I I had to to push my bike on a few climbs because um, I was simply getting stuck in the mud. I had to, to clean my chain all 10 minutes. It was uh, a total nightmare. Okay. It was going at maybe a third of the speed I'm, I would usually go. That's brutal. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> what, kind of, uh, what kind of tires do you use on the bike, especially when you're up in the Alaska like that? I was going with uh, normal road bike tires, uh, 30 millimeters. A 30 millimeter road um, bike tire? Yeah. So I always ride um, between 28 and 32 road bike tires, okay. depending on the, on the country. If it's good pavement, I will go with 28. I think that's the best balance between uh, comfort uh, and speed. And uh, if the road isn't that good, I go with 30 or even 32. Yeah, I see. Even in the road biking community, a lot of people are now going bigger tires. You know, 23 was the standard for so long, and now people are saying, oh, 25s, 26s, 27s. Yeah, it's actually not even faster going with 22 or 23. Uh, I really don't think there's any reason to yeah. still cycle on, on those kind of tires. It's just rough. For road racing, I would, yeah, yeah. I would go, if I do like road racing or time trialing, I would probably put on 25. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, in the in the very long distance endurance stuff, it's not about the margin of a few seconds. It's about um, being on the bike for 12 hours plus every day. Yeah. And for that uh, if you lose a few seconds because of bigger tires, um, you gain it to being able to stay on the bike longer. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, 28 to 32 is, in my opinion, the, the way to go. Awesome. Good to hear. Uh, what were some of the, I mean, your video of the Pan America solo was, uh, it's only 45 minutes long, so there's only so much you can show. 
what were some of the highlights that you felt for this North America, or the, not North America, the Americas, some of the highlights from the Americas? Yeah, like one moment I will definitely never forget was in the Yukon. Um, so I cycled um, already, it was late, uh, late August, mm -hmm. uh, so it already gets dark a little bit. And uh, I was at, at uh, almost midnight riding on a very empty road with no cars or anything for the last uh, 30 minutes. And then the Northern Lights appeared. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, if you are under the Northern Lights on, on, a, on a road on your own, it's just incredible. It was there for probably around 20 minutes and then they were gone again. But yeah. it's something I, I, I will never forget. Did you get any video of it? It's. I had a GoPro Five. That's uh, good, but not for Northern Lights. Yeah. It doesn't really work in the dark. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what I have. I have a GoPro Five. It's yeah. It doesn't do very night night stuff very well. <laughs> yeah, it's good during the day, but but night stuff you need something uh, more professional. Any other unforgettable moments? Uh, of course, of course. Um, I also, I mean, absolutely love South America, and uh, I remember climb up to um, Puerto uh, Paso Pass. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, was this point of my route at uh, 4,800 meters? Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, um, it go it goes up from the from the Atacama Desert, and uh, you climb um, on 45k straight up on a steep road. And um, when you get to the top, you stay actually for around 280 kilometers on a high plateau above 4,000 meters oh, nice. until you get down in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, the climb was probably the of the worst moments of my life because I was suffering heavily from high altitude sickness above 4,000 meters. Right. And um, but the ride on the top, it is just incredible. You are like surrounded by 6,000 meters meter mountains in like a semi-desert landscape, and there's just one village for like 300k. So it really feels like you are in this amazing landscape on your own, and. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Like the sky at night, it's something, uh, yeah. yeah, very, very different from what I've seen before. How about dangerous situations? I remember seeing in your video when you were in, was it not Ecuador? Was it, was it Ecuador? Honduras was Honduras, for me the most dangerous you were, place. You were videotaping just outside town where you found a crappy hotel. What about dangerous situations like that? Can you tell us? Uh, yeah. So, so of course I always had a, yeah. So I had a few of the dangerous situations with traffic, of course, on a, on a journey like this, mm -hmm. but that was much better than, than in Russia. Um, I had, uh, I didn't feel very safe in in uh, Honduras and uh, a few places in Guatemala and uh, southern Mexico. But apart from that, um, the journey was actually safe in terms of, of people or violence. Okay. Um, the, the, the worst situation for me was actually um, Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras. Mm -hmm. It's uh, supposed to be one of the most dangerous cities in the world and um, it really is you have like people with shotguns standing in front of a pharmacy and every shot every shop and uh, if you go into the hotel there is a, is a guard like at a parking spot and and another one um, inside the hotel so it's really something I lived in Brazil and say lived uh, stayed in Mexico for some time it's supposed to be dangerous countries but this is like a completely different level mm -hmm. 
so I was night riding in, in, in South America and uh, I got into in Tegucigalpa, but it was going uphill all the time and I had, I had flats, so I simply miscalculated and I was okay. getting into, into the dark and uh, the road uh, went to a slum. I simply know I shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I got into, I got into, I found it like an hour motel, um, luckily. Like a love and motel, I went in, yeah? Went in there. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so I, I went in there, uh, but I didn't have any food left. Um, so I, I also, I talked to them like, yeah, I need to get something. And there was like a place like really just 200 meters from there. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to let me go there. Oh, wow. Because they said like, yeah, if, if you go there, um, the likelihood that you get killed is actually not that unlikely. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I, I really felt like um, this is the, the worst place you can possibly be. And um, in the next morning, I when, well, I, I went out and, and, and the police also stopped me. They said like, uh, yeah, Kingo, uh, you are crazy. You really shouldn't be here. Oh, seriously. <laughs> but... Uh, and then they escorted me out of town. Okay. Did you actually go to the store that night then and get food, or did you stay in the hotel? And... Um, I got the company from one of the guys from the, okay. from the hotel. And you speak yeah. Spanish though, right? So that helps. Yes, it, it does help. It does help a lot. And you speak Portuguese yeah. as well, I guess, after three years in Brazil? Yes, yes, I do speak Spanish and, and Portuguese and English, so uh, that does help a lot in those countries. And Swedish and German, so you're, you're pretty well off. Yeah. I, I lived in a lot of countries too. You pick it up. I watched your video. It looks absolutely horrendous. The headwinds in Argentina. Any advice? I know. I mean, everybody knows it's bad, but if you have any advice, things that you found worked well to deal with them. A lot of people had warned me about the headwinds in mm-hmm. Patagonia, and uh, what I thought, like, yeah, you have traveled uh, to so many places. Um, the people, they, it's probably bad, but that can't be true. Uh, what people are telling, mm-hmm. um, but it is true. It is true. It is. Huh? So. It is, it is. The, the headwinds in Patagonia on a calm day are worse than what you would ever have in Europe okay. on a stormy day. It's like a really, a normal day in Patagonia is hurricane warning in a lot of other parts of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is something you have to take very serious. Okay. I had, um, I remember, um, I had one day where I was riding, I was averaging almost 50 kmh an hour for the whole day. Yeah. So I was doing like 300k just before lunch uh, wow. with a tailwind, and I had other days I had to push my bike at some day because the wind was coming with over 100 km/h uh, an hour from the side. So it was simply not not possible to cycle anymore. Okay, yeah, because it's a sidewind too, right? So it just keeps blowing you sideways, and you can't really steer against it. Yeah, the the thing is, I, I had headwinds with like 80 km/h an hour, which means. I'm on, on the, in the first gear going with like 5 or 6 kmh, okay. uh, which is terrible, but you still move. Mm-hmm. When the wind comes from the side, um, it is just uh, dangerous. You, you cannot control. I didn't have the bike under control anymore. And um, the, the good thing about Patagonia is the wind comes most of the, most of the time from the, from the Andes, so from the west or from mm-hmm. the southwest, but uh, not all the time. Uh, it sometimes changes, uh, especially in the in the evening. Okay. And there often is actually much much less wind at night. Um, so I got an, an app which is called Windy, and it's very accurate. And uh, I basically timed my uh, my riding with that one. Ah, okay. It's called then, Windy. Uh, whenever... W I N D Y. Yes, exactly. Okay. And uh, it works pretty well in Patagonia. In other parts of the world, it's not that accurate, but for Patagonia, it is. And um, I basically made sure. I'm every single second where the wind isn't coming with 50 kmh plus from the front, mm-hmm. I'm on the bike okay. and, um, and, uh, and push through. And that worked for Patagonia pretty well. Mm-hmm. For me, the wind was actually worse in, in Peru because um, uh, in Peru, I cycled the, the Pan America, which is on the, on the coast. Yeah. And the, the difference is the wind is less than in Argentina. In Peru, you have strong headwinds but not extreme ones like in, in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. The difference is uh, on the Peruvian coast, the wind comes um, 365 days a year from oh, the south. It never stops. It never right? changes. Oh, okay. No, it never changes. And uh, I mean, I was two months on the bike already, so you're mentally tired. 
And uh, I'm always an optimist, so I always tell myself tomorrow is going to be better. Yeah. And I could do that in Patagonia, but I couldn't do it in Peru because I know it's 3,000 K to Chile and <laughs> the wind won't change. And for your for your record-setting attempt, you had to stay on the Pan America, yeah? No, no, no you, you don't. don't have to? It's basically, no, it's basically a point-to-point record. Okay, it's point-to-point. And the Darien Gap is an, and the Darien Gap is an acceptable place that you're allowed to fly over and still make a record attempt. Yes, exactly. So the Darien Gap is basically impossible to cross yeah, because there is no road and no border. Uh, you can. There are few, very very few people who have ever crossed it uh, um, on land. The problem is uh, you enter Colombia illegally, and mm-hmm. then uh, sorting that out takes weeks. Yeah, and you got the drug dealers and humans and cannibals and criminals and everything to deal with inside the jungles too. Yes, all all the stuff too, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it's not what you really want to do. Um, the thing is, um, Panama City is actually uh, south of uh, Cartagena in Barranquilla. Okay. And uh, so when you fly from Panama to Cartagena or Barranquilla, you're actually flying uh, geographically back, oh, and for okay. that reason, it is allowed. So the rule is basically you are not allowed to. Uh, in a north to south crossing, you're not allowed to progress a single centimeter right. north to south uh, with alternative transportation, but you can fly back if there's no border. Yeah, you can't fly forward. You can only fly backwards. That makes sense, actually. Yeah. That's, uh, I think the round the world yeah. trips are the same thing, right? You can, like, people start and they fly to Australia to cycle Australia, New Zealand, and then fly to wherever. Yeah. Yeah, the round the world is a bit different in terms of definitions, but it's uh, also similar. Uh, I mean, you have a lot of flights in there. Okay. And uh, different route options, but it is also similar that the distance basically counts in in terms of progress um, uh, going west, east, or east, west. Okay, let's talk about your upcoming challenge: cycling from Nordkap to Cape Town. I see you decided yep. to to have a partner for this one. Can you tell us a bit about him and why you decided to to have a partner? Yeah, so so I decided basically to have a partner because I think it's just a different challenge. Mm-hmm. I have done uh, Eurasia and, and Pan America on my own, and I enjoy it on my own, but uh, I like to, to ride it with someone, and um, it will be just a very different challenge because I don't say it's necessarily easier. There are a lot of things that you, you have to deal with, uh, and I like that. And um, I had originally planned to do it with a, with a friend from Mexico, Mm-hmm. But uh, I changed. Uh, I had to change the partner. Now it's uh, oh. actually uh, um, Philip Himpendal. It's a photographer from Germany who is joining. Okay. Uh, the reason for that is um, uh, a Mexican cannot get two passports and uh, struggles to get some visa. Oh, that's too bad. So yeah, there are a lot of uh, very challenging um, countries in between because mm-hmm. for Sudan, for example, is one of the places you can get a visa only 30 days in advance, uh, but we needed at least uh, 50 days in advance. Right. Um, so with a German passport, I got it already um, with some um, troubles, but uh, my other option was always I have two passports, so um, I can actually still apply for visas while I'm on the road. Oh, and that's that makes, good. Uh, yeah. That makes life much more easy. And then you have a handler to take care of it and then mail you the passport, yeah? Exactly. So, so my dad could possibly handle that and send me the passport to Cairo or wherever it is. And the difference is also in, in Mexico, um, most countries actually don't even have an embassy there, like the, the small ones. Yeah. Uh, so it makes things very difficult if you have to fly in person to the US and, and back and everything. And uh, with a German passport, um, life is a lot, of, a lot easier. There was an Indian girl actually trying to set around the world record last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, she mostly failed because of her nationality, actually, oh. because to whichever country she, she got, um, she did have massive visa, visa issues. And uh, yeah, Africa is the place where you probably get most. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about this uh, German photographer then. Um, who is he and what's his biking uh, story? Is he, is he going to be able to keep up with you? Oh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> There's no other option. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so he is a basically a photographer from uh, works for like a, the Tour magazine, which is a is a big uh, cycling magazine from Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, he has been uh, doing long distance rides uh, and races for the last uh, fifteen years. Oh, that's good. So, uh, so he hasn't done an, an eighteen thousand k uh, record yet, okay. but uh, he has done a lot of uh, two thousand, five thousand um, k races. Oh, very good. And uh, 
so he's very strong. We will see how he, he we will see how he feels after a month. Yeah, yeah. I wish him the best. Uh, but yeah, I'm very confident that he can he can uh, manage. Awesome. What kind of bikes are you using? You said you've changed. You're not using the Cervelo now. You're using Curve. Is that what you said? Yes. So I'm using a Curve uh, endurance bike. Uh, it's titanium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a bike basically that is built for not making any problem and uh, being comfortable. Okay. And uh, because the thing is, um, my main, actually the biggest challenge uh, of, of like why I would possibly fail during the records is not uh, that I can't do it. Um, the biggest risk is actually um, that I get a mechanical that I can't fix. Yeah. Because um, there is a bike shop in Cairo, one in Nairobi and then in South Africa. And in between, it's almost impossible to get road bike parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that reason, my bike is all based on only standard parts and being as reliable as it is possible for a road bike. Okay. I think you might have luck if you if you had to, to get to Rwanda, but Rwanda has a, a really big bicycle culture from what I hear. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Apparently the Tour of Rwanda is the only big tour where like intercontinental teams come to race in Africa. Or maybe South Africa or something okay. too. Yeah. I haven't uh, heard of that, but I'm not, I'm not going to Rwanda. You're not anyway, going. So. I saw your map. Yeah. So yeah. I think the closest you'll get to Rwanda is Kenya. Yeah. Even Nairobi is a good bike shop. Okay. But um, but still, I mean, if 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 I get um, the, the bike problem somewhere in in the Sahara Desert in Sudan, I think my my chances of of getting a spare part is are very very low. Yeah. Are you uh, are you still using the Adipura kit, or are you now using the Ortlieb stuff you had on the Biking Man Peru? I use the Ortlieb stuff. You're using Ortlieb now, yeah. And you're yeah. using for bike packing. You have a saddlebag. A what else do you have? Yeah, so so I use uh, the medium sized saddlebag. Okay. Uh, the frame bag, mm-hmm. and the handlebar bag. And uh, apart from that, I'm also having again like uh, a tri bag that I can. Uh, strap around uh, while under the arrow bars if necessary. Okay. So the the three bags are actually uh, enough for, I would say, ninety percent of the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in in Sudan there is a distance of um, three hundred fifty or three hundred eighty k with nothing, and uh, it's a hera with like temperatures of fifty km yeah. uh, fifty degrees Celsius. So at that point, I will be carrying probably fifteen liters of water. So oh, wow. that is something mm-hmm. where where I have to to plan logistically really ahead and uh, strap possibly something with like with tape on my fork and mm-hmm. and all other places. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think about doing that at night actually, the stretch action because uh, it's hot. It's not that hot. True. I uh, I interviewed a guy. He said his one day he had to be out in the middle of the day in the sun and his phone exploded. Well, like the battery swelled and it broke the screen and so. Bear in yeah. mind the heat and keep things somehow cooler. Yeah, exactly. What uh, what challenges do you anticipate with cycling with a partner? It's uh, I mean, I guess it's not a new thing because you just did a t- little uh, an adventure with your brother, but yeah. Um, well, the, the thing is, um, it's also allowed to uh, so we can ride in the wind shadow of each other, but of course not in the wind shadow of anyone else. Okay. Uh, so it's it's simply a, a pair record. Okay. Um. So you can do balance uh, if someone has a weekday, mm-hmm. but um, the partner still has to be up to keep up in your in your wind shadow as an absolute minimum. Yeah. Also on the weakest day ever. Um, the challenges are basically that um, everything takes a bit longer, the stops and uh, it's simply two people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a higher risk of that someone gets malaria or food poisoning or something like that. True, yeah. Uh, same for bike mechanics, uh, flats and everything. So we will probably get in a little bit less riding time than I would uh, would do alone. Okay. And uh, I don't know um, how much that is. If we get like 15 minutes less riding time a day, then the wind shadow, of course, um, the advantage is bigger than 15 minutes. Yeah, the drafting will but, help. Yeah. Uh, exactly. But mm-hmm. uh, if someone gets malaria or something like that, then that costs like probably three or four days and um, depending on what kind of malaria. But um, so there is the, the risk of having something, a major issue is of course higher if you're too. 
What about the benefits? I mean, obviously the drafting or wind shadow you mentioned a few times. Um, that's one big advantage. Anything else that you see as a a good benefit? Yeah, of course with uh, with luggage. I mean, it's now one tent to carry, one time uh, cooking stuff. Mm-hmm. We do have also similar bikes, so um, like button brackets. We carry one, for example, and this kind of stuff. So the total weight is a little bit less, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it faster less uh, naturally. Okay. And um, then, of course, um, it is simply a big advantage if you are two people, uh, from a man, from a, a motivational aspect. True. Oh yeah, there's because that um, I know the, it is so hard when you are on your own in a desert and you are like really struggling uh, to keep your motivation up. If you are two people, you have someone uh, to talk to, and that's just because it's it's all it can be boring at stretches. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have someone to talk, you get distracted, and the miles just fly easier. Yeah. So um, this, of course, helps. But I've seen it now during the biking man race that also it can it can turn into the other direction. So um, you know that in, in the Incadi ride race I was doing now, there were only twelve finishers out of forty-four riders. Okay. And um, I believe a lot of that is actually good behavior. That like. Uh, one guy comes with a negative idea, yeah, and um, and then uh, if it's hard for everyone, you basically get an easy way out. Uh, so if if one guy's feel guy feels feels weak, the other one can can jump onto it and uh, say, "Oh, I'm feeling weak too." Uh, so there is this risk too. Yeah, there's the risk, as you just said, um, to feed off other people's negative energy, right? So like, if not everybody's feeling right up to the task, and there will be those days, you gotta like not let it affect you, which can be tough. Exactly, exactly. It'll be just very interesting to see what uh, what is like the, the motivational aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I believe most of the time it's positive, but the risk is uh, is higher. How does it affect the record if for something happens where one of the people, one of the persons has to drop out of the race? Um, does it still count as if you finished like on your own or he finished at the end on his own? Does it count as still a two-man record? Uh, no. Uh, the thing is basically if you do a solo record... You do. You can never draft. Okay. Which means you do all of it on your own. If you stay just one minute in the wind shadow of someone, uh, it's not a record anymore. Okay. Uh, so, uh, if I start with someone and he drops out, I can't set the solo record anymore. Right now, because does for the it team, still become a team? No. For the team record, the the time of the second person counts. Oh, okay. Otherwise, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, somebody would sprint away for the last two hundred kilometers after drafting for several days and just give yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it does. It's not not teamwork, but it, it doesn't work. Also, yeah. yeah. So the time of the second person simply counts for the record. And uh, well, if for some reason uh, someone has to give up, I'm from my side. I would of course still uh, continue riding it mm-hmm. and uh, and finish the journey as as fast as I can. In the end, uh, the world record isn't my main motivation. Uh, my main motivation is uh, the experience and uh, can I actually do it uh, to push myself, yeah. uh, the challenge and the adventure. Uh, the world record is in the end like uh, the cherry on the top. But uh, yes, if one drops out and I, I or he arrives alone, it's not considered a, a world record anymore. Mm-hmm. Another question with we, we talked you mentioned Sudan briefly, but with the the geopolitics in the region, how how do you prepare for cycling in places like Iraq and Sudan? Uh, recently, Sudan has had a lot of uh, mounting political problems, so I'm just wondering if you're on top of this and uh, how you, what do you do about it? Yes, of course, I, I, I am on top of it, and I, I do have uh, contacts at uh, several embassies. Where I get uh, constant information. Mm-hmm. So uh, first thing is. Um, I do have several vote options for the Middle East. Okay. Uh, not for Africa because there is no other vote option. You have to go to Sudan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Sudan is uh, even if the I think the situation improved a bit, but um, if there would be a proper civil war ongoing, I would still have to go to. Uh, while Iraq, I can po- possibly detour. Paint a red cross on your uh, chest. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, first of all, as a, as a German. Um, you are a little bit well received, better received in yeah. that uh, area than from some other countries. And um, the second thing is what I do is basically is staying flexible. So I get information every single day mm-hmm. what's what's ahead of me, 
uh, how's the situation there? I talk with locals, I talk with uh, uh, friends at uh, embassies, and I'm willing to detour uh, tomorrow, basically. Okay. For Iraq, there's no major problems, I guess, or it's not too bad with the route you've chosen at the moment, or...? Yeah, Iraq is uh, still a concern because uh, mostly because of the visa. Okay. I'm I'm still not 100% sure I get it. Um, the road to Syria is currently closed because they, they, you cannot cross from Turkey into Syria. Okay. Uh, so another option is going uh, via Iran. Ah, okay. uh, Iraq is my my would be my favorite choice. Uh, in terms of safety, I believe Iraq is currently okay, but visa is very difficult. So if you if you went to Iran, you would fly down you would or wait, sorry when you get to the bottom of Iran you would fly over to Egypt is that negative ground exactly so yeah uh, the record allows to fly from from Shiraz in southern Iran to Cairo ah from Shiraz it's actually okay. what the, the last the last guy did uh, so the, the current uh, record stands at 102 guy two days also mm -hmm. by two guys yep and they flew from from Shiraz to to Cairo I do believe that uh, if the borders are open and I can do it on land, cycling everything, then that's what I'm going to do. Awesome. Um, but uh, if the, the Iraq visa isn't possible and the border is closed, then uh, Iran is the, is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And I've heard people complain, to, like say that in Egypt, the police don't really want you stopping anywhere because they always want, they don't want a person having an issue in their territory. So you prepare for some big cycling days, maybe. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Egypt is my actually my biggest concern. Because um, um, I heard from a lot of people that the police stops you and they force you to get onto the truck and drive you, uh -huh. which uh, you, of course, can't do during a record. Yeah. Uh, so I know that the, the fastest route is actually um, going on the Red Sea Highway. Mm -hmm. um, but that's forbidden to cycle. I know that the, 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 the current record hold across Africa, um, he has, has done that, but he basically paid uh, quite some money to get a police escort and uh, uh, the permit to do it. Ah. Um, and I'm not I'm not going to do it because I don't want to have police escort. Um, I want to be on my own and free. So um, I'm taking a different route along the Nile. And uh, it's very simple. There are different route options in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And if the police stops me and say, you're not allowed to continue, then I turn around and uh, find a different route. Okay. You can maybe have a placard, like some kind of a note that's written in Arabic as well for them that they can read and see that, like, I'm doing a world record tour, I can't stop, I need to go, blah, blah, blah. Maybe. I actually do have a letter in, in Arabic and English. Okay. And I also have a, a friend from, from Cairo uh, who I can call, and then he speaks with the police to, oh, neg okay. to negotiate. Maybe you should. Uh, maybe you could also go to the uh, Egyptian embassy in in Berlin, I guess, or in, or another consulate, and have them like their foreign office stamp it with some official stamps or something. I don't know. <laughs> I believe that is a terrible idea, because uh, I want to stay in terms of Egypt, Egyptian authority. I want to stay under the radar. Okay. Um, the thing is, uh, if they know about it, they will one hundred percent sure uh, force me to get police escort and pay for it. Ah, okay. That's at least what I have, what I heard. Uh, so if you don't want to pay a few thousand dollars for and having a police escort across uh, Africa, then you better make the authorities not know about it. Good to know. What do you anticipate or what is your plan at the moment for your daily cycling or daily mileage kilometers? Yeah, so it's it's basically two very different stretches. It is super fast across Finland and Russia mm -hmm. and uh, it gets much slower in Africa for the reason mostly uh, in Africa, I prefer not to night cycle for safety reasons. Yeah. And it's close to the equator, so that basically gives me 12 hours a day. Um, so I want to average close to 300k um, until uh, I reach Georgia. Mm -hmm. And uh, afterwards, uh, we will see what is possible, but I believe 250 is still uh, possible across Africa. Awesome. So, yeah, it will be somewhere... It's hard to say. If everything goes well, I believe uh, maybe 270k and as an average as possible. Okay. Um, but uh, on a journey like this, there will be major issue, issues. Um, malaria costs you a few days and, and some stuff. So it's very, very hard to say mm -hmm. um, um, where you end up in the, in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so be fast in the beginning and, and get a buffer. True. Makes a good point. What is a one piece other than your bike, one piece of equipment that you cannot live without? 
I guess Please, I cannot live without. I guess everything uh, you're taking you need. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's my my phone. Your phone. It's I use it for navigation. I use it for social media. Is it just uh, a normal smartphone or is it uh, something else? Yeah, normal Samsung Galaxy uh, phone. Okay. And uh, I I use it for really everything. There is something I'm uh, I really can't live without. Well, it's basically my equipment is so light that uh, I really need everything every day. Yeah. Apart from from spokes or something like that, which I need in the in the worst situation, mm-hmm. there is nothing in my equipment that I that I don't need. And did you say you guys are carrying an extra bottom bracket? I do carry an extra bottom bracket because this is something I had problems before. Okay. And uh, I'm not going to find the proper one uh, right. once I'm past Helsinki. Okay, interesting. I never would have thought of a bottom bracket as an extra thing to carry on a. On a tour, it's the, the risk is low, but if it happens, um, it's over. Is there is there any one person that made a huge impact or influence on where you are today? Um, I think my my granddad actually. Um, so my granddad, uh, he's also German, mm-hmm. but uh, when he was fifty, he moved to Africa and became a snake hunter in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> So um, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, he really made the, he lived in, a, in a, actually in a Land Rover in the jungle for 28 years until he returned to to Germany. Oh wow! And um, that simply made it changed the way my my dad thinks. It's changed the way I think mm-hmm. because um, my whole family um, it is accepted to follow your dream. It's accepted to take a risk and uh, and do what you want. So um, I don't have the pressure or or the dream of um, defining myself by by money or by by how much I can make and uh, having the perfect career, but I define it by basically doing what I love, okay. and uh, and that comes a lot from 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 that I I had my granddad at a small age already. Oh, that's very cool. And how was he at snake hunting? Was he good? Of course, he was. Uh, was well, he was the only one in, in Western Africa, <laughs> as far as I know. But uh, yeah, the, the local people they had they have all um, they were afraid of the snakes, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, so he came and and hunted them, and uh, uh, he used the, the, the serum or like the, the poison, for yeah, them, and sell it. Uh-huh. And um, but I've seen him once actually. The last time I was there, um, they called. I was there with my cousin uh, visiting him. And uh, the locals, they called us because they found a, a big python in, uh, somewhere in someone's garden. And uh, usually they kill them. Uh, but so they called my, my granddad and he came. And uh, everyone was scared. My, my granddad just, just walked there and picked him up and put him around, around his neck. And the python didn't do anything. No way, yeah? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What is, um, just a few more questions here before we're done. What is the best piece of advice anyone has given you? The best piece of advice is uh, whatever you want to do, just start now. Um, because what, if you are really passionate about something, you, you really want to do something, um, you can prepare for it for, for years and wait and wait. And there are always other opportunities going into the way. So you may end up never doing it. But uh, if I really want to do something, I mostly um, decide in the moment uh, I will do it. So if someone comes to me with a very stupid idea, uh, but I think it's awesome, I will actually say uh, immediately, yes, we are going to do that, and we are going to do it in half a year. And uh, then failing is part of it, but um, if you really want to do it, you get good at it. So, yeah, it's just like not being afraid about it, doing the first step, and that's the hardest thing of of actually doing the whole journey. Mm-hmm. I guess my question should be: What offer? What a piece, or what piece of advice can you offer other endurance athletes um, that want to take up a challenge such as you've done? Because that's that's a very good answer. Yeah, that's pretty much the the, 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 the most important thing for if you want to get into endurance cycling. Just yeah. do it. What's uh, what's next for you after this challenge? You said uh, you're you're doing these now while you still have this ability to do it. Um, and then, what is what's your goal after? Well, afterwards, I, I already have some. I'm back in Europe for for a few speeches, mm-hmm. and I do have some uh, still secret expeditions planned. Cool. Um, it's not any record; it's just uh, very remote and uh, 
exotic expedition. Yeah. And uh, then I do another record uh, like uh, next year in, in summer. And uh, my ultimate goal is is in the end to do a, to go around the world with with human power. Okay. So that means uh, not only cycling on the land, but also crossing um, the oceans on your own power. Nice. And I think just this is a, is the ultimate challenge. There's I, nothing uh, you can do afterwards. I met a guy in 2000 and um, whew, it might have been around 2004 or five when I was living in Russia and he had cycled to Russia and yeah. he was going to cycle like and he we thought he was crazy because this was in the days before I was really back into biking and stuff and he his goal was he's like I'm going to cycle to China and I'm going to yeah. buy a boat and I'm going to sail across or row across the ocean but he had no money so he was like he's like I, I don't know how I'll get the money for that yet but I'll figure it out and we were just like oh he's mental he's nuts like there's no way you could do this but <laughs> now knowing what I know I'm like do it find a way you know find sponsors and and exactly, he, and he would talk like the ultimate thing to him was to meet somebody and have a child, and then travel around the world and row across the ocean or whatever, you know, these things. And we all thought, what a mental nut job! But now, now having developed to the person I am, I'm like, good for him, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the, the thing is, um, you get if someone would have told me like five years ago, you can cycle Pan America in in less than a hundred days. I would have said it's impossible, mm-hmm. but uh, now I know I could actually do it even faster. And yeah. um, that is like the same with ocean rowing or whatever you you, you want to do. It is um, once you get into it, it actually becomes more more visible than you you could have ever ever imagined. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking I could do the Pan America in 96 days. So uh, watch out. <laughs> But then you you better go for it soon, yeah. Yeah, I'm already 39, <laughs> so it's a <laughs> clock is ticking. Um, actually, the uh, I was looking up yesterday or the day before what the uh, the record is across Canada, and that the the actual record Vancouver to Halifax. Yeah. And it's just under six thousand kilometers, and the record is thirteen days, eight hours, something minutes. The guy I averaged like five hundred kilometers a day, but it's supported, I think, because yeah, I saw his bike be. and it didn't have any equipment on. He had just like a, a fuel bag, and that's it, you know. It's a supported that is definitely possible, but unsupported, I have my 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 serious doubts. Um, yeah, so so if you go from Vancouver to Halifax, I believe you have it's mostly flat, and mostly with a tailwind. Yeah, if you as long as you don't get unlucky in the prairies, yeah. So if you have a support car, you can actually average more than thirty km an hour. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting record. I support... was actually considering that like two two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> With a support car, are you allowed to draft or no? Uh, no, of course not. No, of course not. So it's just, but you have your place to sleep and you have instant food ready for you and everything good to go, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, the, the the biggest advantage of the support car is uh, actually where they carry all your equipment, mm-hmm. but uh, it's mostly the food because if you're unsupported, you you eat at McDonald's and gas stations. Yeah. If you have a support car, you get um, basically protein shakes and whatever you want uh, and a plate of pasta all 30 minutes. This is um, the longer the race gets, the bigger the advantage is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because yeah, to do it uh, 500K in a day, you have to be cycling, I think. You'd have to be going 15, 18 hours a day probably on the bike. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's only for 13 and, days, so then you're done and you can rest. Yeah. Yeah, but you you can't do that if you if you have to buy food and everything on your own and yeah. do repairs. Um, you simply don't get the, this time in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there are like uh, you have Race Across America and Trans M, uh, which is similar. One is supported, the other one is unsupported, mm-hmm. and uh, the difference is actually around fifty percent. Okay, wow, that's insane. Yeah, and I think the yeah. uh, the unsupported race last year or recently was won by a woman and. Uh... She rocked it. I think the second. Oh yeah, there's a, there's a very, yeah, yeah, there's a very strong woman who, who um, also the the, the transcontinental was Europe was a woman who won it this time. So uh-huh. that's something uh, development. I'm very glad to see because yeah. uh, that's very recent that you have uh, women actually also winning the races. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes it more interesting. Where can people find you if they'd like to follow your adventures? Well, of course, on my on my website, uh, johnsteichmann.com. And uh, Facebook, Instagram, also have a YouTube channel. 
And uh, yeah, I'm uploading pictures and videos and everything. And on my website, there's also live trackers. So you can always see my position and progress uh, across Europe and Africa. I was about to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to share that I forgot to bring up, but there was something I meant to bring up and that was your motivational speaking, if you want to just talk about that. Yeah, sure. Apart from cycling, I mean, I'm, I'm traveling around eight months a year on a bike. And um, then I'm usually in the summer months um, working as a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. So what I do is basically I share the techniques of how you basically never give up and, and push through things that are incredibly challenging. And uh, I worked before as the, um, actually also in, in, in an oil business and uh, sales. Uh, so I relate that to how you can actually do this in in business life and in other situations. Okay. So it's about um, like a few key messages from ultra cycling that you can apply to also perform better in, in, in business. Awesome. Um, well, I wish you all the best on your upcoming world tour. I will be following along like many others. And uh, hopefully we have a chance to talk again in the future and see how it all went for you. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again soon. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to that. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Bike Tour Adventures. If you did like this episode, you can subscribe on whatever podcast app you use to listen. You can also check out my website at www.biketouradventures.com. In next week's episode, we are going to be meeting Matt and Becky, a British couple that have just finished their one-year bike tour and are now settling back into normal everyday life. And they're going to share with us some of the challenges and pros and cons of their bike tour and what it did for them. So tune in and I hope you enjoy it. See you later and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.